Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Rasha Alakidi. Rasha is a senior analyst and the head of the Non-State Actors Program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute in Washington. Her work focuses on non-state armed groups, political Islam, and her hometown of Mosul, Iraq. Rasha, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me again, Bill. The attempted assassination of Prime Minister Mustafa al-Khadami this past weekend, what can you tell us about it and, and who do you think is behind it? Uh, well, it's definitely an escalation that was is way out of proportion than what I believe anyone anticipated from the groups that are most likely uh, the suspects in this case. And it, it, it comes at a time where just, you know, a few weeks after the election results, the, the main election results were announced, and a few, just a few days after protests of those who, certain groups who had rejected the elections and accused the United Nations and the international community of fraud and interference and changing the both votes and manipulating the outcomes. Uh, so an escalation was anticipated, but to the point of actually sending drones to the prime minister's residency in the green zone, uh, that's definitely, uh, they, they took it a step, I believe, way too far. Uh, as to who's responsible, looking at the operation itself, the type of weapon that was used, how it was executed, it's from the same groups that had previously uh, used drones against international uh, interests in Iraq, whether um, embassies, foreign embassies, or military bases um, that include Iraqi and coalition forces, and certain um, also certain interests in North interests in North Iraq, particularly Turkish air bases and uh, military bases as well. They also attacked uh, them also using drones. So we see this tactic is the same. And it's these groups that are that do fall indirectly under the umbrella of the popular mobilization forces. So no one has claimed the attack. And uh, this is usually the case in the beginning. Then, then what happens is that a statement comes up from a group that is very obscure, no one's heard about, and they claim that they're a new group, and they formed under the resistance, under the muqawama. And they are against, for example, U.S. presence, British presence in Iraq, international coalition, Turkish inter- intervention, whatever cause they have that day. And they have attacked, they, they adopt the, the attack, and they say, we are responsible, and we will continue to fight. Um, and this is a group that, like I said, no one knows. It's a new group. They claim that they're not part of the popular mobilization forces. But in fact, with the, who they are, they're actually members of Kata'ab Hezbollah and members of Asa'ab al-Haq, who are, are both notorious militias, but they do fall officially under the popular mobilization forces, meaning they are part of Iraqi state of the Iraqi state's official security apparatus. They can't do these attacks because they're part of the state. So what they do is they sort of delegate them to these splinter groups, and these groups carry out the attack. Now, that's in the past. This attack, no one has claimed it. Until this moment, there has not been even a splinter group or an obscure unknown group that has said, we're in charge, we're responsible, we carried out this attack because A, B, C, D, this is what we want. And the uh, the other, the, the more well-known established militias like Asab al-Haq, like Atab Hezbollah, they have uh, denied any involvement. Not only that, they have actually accused the prime minister himself of carrying out the attack. They've called it a false flag and they've accused him of directing the whole thing, orchestrating it in order to gain sympathy from the international community and sympathy from from the Iraqi streets um, in an attempt to secure his second term as prime minister. So that's how ludicrous 
the conversation between the two different sides has become. Yes, I, I, I've heard that as well, that uh, the prime minister himself orchestrated it, which, as you suggest, uh, is a ludicrous, a ludicrous claim. <laughs> uh, a year ago, you wrote a piece that you recently uh, retweeted about Mustafa Al-Khadami's failure to deal with the many killings of activists and analysts, including mm-hmm. Hisham Al-Hashimi, a friend and mm-hmm. colleague of many here in London. The assassinations are linked to the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces, uh, these Shia militias that, as you say, linked to Iran. But he has a very difficult road to walk, yes. doesn't he? And a dangerous one, as we've seen over this past weekend. Mm-hmm. That is that is true. So the fear here is that if he confronts these militias, and we have to make clear when we say popular mobilization forces, because there, there are many groups, and there are the ones that are linked to the IRGC directly, and they fall under the the you know the the resistance camp these are the ones who are problematic but the pmf as a whole has also become a problem and it was clear that this was going to be the route um i don't think anyone who did not see this coming is either has issues with forecasting and perhaps um, analysis might not be just their thing because it's very logical that this was going to be an outcome when you give so many perks to this new coming uh fighting force that was to a huge extent ideological. Um, they're not going to stay content with, with just the little you give them. They are after dominance. They want to control the entire security apparatus um, in Iraq, very similar to how the IRGC sort of overtook uh, the military institutions in Iran, where the army is sort of secondary to the IRGC. That is what the, what, what the Hashid or the PMF uh, was going to always be. And yes, there were attempts to sort of curtail these ambitions, but that failed. And now what's happened is that the most aggressive members of the PMF were disappointed and shocked at that at the election turnout. And though they, they attempted their best and they at some point intimidated so many, and we see that, as you said, with the assassinations, the, it's clear that they do not have the popularity that many, including analysts in the United States and in London, had suggested. They don't have the popularity. They don't have, they don't have mainstream Iraq in their pockets, like they say. They, they don't control the narrative in, on inside Iraq. Um, they do with their weapons, but people, when they had the chance to vote, they did not vote for them. And as a result, they, they resorted, of course, to aggression and to violence. The thing is that this was always going to be the path and not dealing with them has been problematic. In the piece you mentioned, I do, I do imply that Mustafa Kalvami himself could at some point be a victim. And that's almost what happened a year later. Um, but there is a way to deal with it. There is a way to deal with it that does not have to lead to a full-out war. And this is something actually the sympathizers of the Iran-linked groups of the militias and the militias themselves actually refer to. Whenever people talk about, okay, let's sit on one table, let's negotiate, their answer is, well, if you put too much pressure on us, if we have to concede too much, that's going to lead to an, to a civil war. I have a problem with that term, civil war. This is not, this is not a civilian. This is not a civilian conflict. It's, it's a confrontation between, between the state and between absolute outlaws. That's outlaws. That's different from, that's different from civil war. But this is the, what Mustafa Kalami fears is escalation because Iraq is also never only about Iraq. It would drag Iran in. It would drag other countries in and the United States as well. And it ends up becoming more of a regional conflict. And that is something that Iraq cannot afford. So it's clear that he, he is, he always treads towards de-escalation, even after the assassination attempt. 
this is where he's treading. He's not escalating at all. He's making promises of capturing those who carried out the attack. Whether that's possible or not, we will see in the future. But so far, everything has been within the de-escalation tone. Mm, yeah, I mean, and, and, and the point about the elections is a good one that you make barely a month ago. And as you said, the the uh, militia-aligned uh, parties didn't do well, and, and rather like uh, a certain president uh, cried fraud. And, yep. <laughs> and, and you covered that election, and, and, and at the time you commented that uh, these groups, these parties rejected the entire result out of frustration because they definitely did not win as they had anticipated. Uh, you mentioned the fact that the, the, the popular support is not there, People yes. don't want these groups to be controlling their lives in the brutal way that they uh, they do, but but and you touched also on this possibility of a wider conflict. I mean, do you think that rather like with Trump and the January sixth assault, do you think there's a potential for these for these groups to escalate now to make it more and more violent in order to try and get what they want? So that that is that is a possibility. The, also, what we need to think about when we talk about these groups. There's a there's a dominant or a prominent narrative that these groups have been out of control and been rogue uh, the way they are ever since the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, because no one can sort of curtail them. I have a problem with that uh, with that theory, because they were also carrying out assassinations and causing chaos and extorting and displacing people way before the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. They have always been this way. It's just that at that time, it was very popular to... Um, blame a certain U.S. president that no one liked and pin everything on him. That was just very popular to do. But um, I, I don't I don't really agree with that narrative. That's not something I believe in. The thing is that these groups, even General Soleimani himself and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, they didn't always act out of sheer strategic thinking that was smart, let's call it, or wise. When there was that escalation with the United States during the Trump administration, when, when Donald Trump was president, and he was a president that no one can predict, uh, and definitely not your conventional U.S. president, yet they took that risk of escalation. They were continuing um, the attacks against U.S. interests despite the threats. They took that risk regardless of the outcome. It was almost like, okay, let's do this attack. Let's see what happens. And that attack that killed an American ended up costing Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis their lives. So they don't act necessarily out of strategic thinking. We need to think of them not as these wise political geniuses, whether it's the militias or their leaders. They carry out the attack, and then they kind of believe that they have a safety net, the safety net being the stability and security of Iraq, because they think that they've hijacked the entire state, and they can control the narrative there, and they can control the population. Uh, they have a safety net via intimidation of the people and politicians and policymakers. And another thing is that there's the nuclear deal. This is a very important point. They know that regardless of what they did, there will always be that desire to rejoin the nuclear deal. And they use that to a huge extent as also as a safety net. So they have all these guarantees. This is what they think. But when something like elections happen, this is out of their control. This is not something that they can change or enforce. And their strategy was, okay, let's just escalate and see what happens. So will they escalate again? There's a huge possibility. Also, it depends on the reaction. Uh, we saw that the international community, at uh, at at a huge extent, they rallied um, against, uh, rallied with Mustafa Kalami, uh, supported him, and not only that, called the attack a terrorist attack. 
uh, and and when that that comes from the United Nations, it came from the United States, from Europe as well, also of course from the GCC. Um, the only country that sort of underplayed the attack was Iran, who implied that the GCC and possibly Israel was behind it, and no one really bought that narrative. Not even in Iraq, that narrative was popular. So they might actually also take a step back. I would also like to focus, just mention one point, that while Iran is indeed very influential and is knowledgeable of what these militias are able to do, because because a lot of the technology, including the drones, actually came from Iran. It didn't come from Iraq. They didn't take it from Turkey or from any other state. But with these kinds of attacks, they're more local, meaning that the decision was not made in Tehran. Um, I don't believe for one second the IRGC actually ordered this assassination or approved of it. I think it was the Iraqis on the ground who felt that there was a lot at stake and they needed to do something. I think the attack might have been, uh, I wouldn't call it a warning. If it was a warning, it was a warning to say, to tell the prime minister, we can kill you. Um, but they did send a drone with the purpose of harming as much as possible. And the prime minister was injured. So there was a possibility of death that they were willing to calculate in uh, take into consideration that, okay, we're going to do this attack. He might die. If he had been killed, uh, I believe there might have been like a coup attempt where they try, they, they, they tried to take over the entire state or at least the military apparatus. Uh, that might have been the plan. It didn't succeed. And now they have sort of this ability to, to deny, to, to claim that it was not them, that this was an outside attack or this was a false flag. And, the leadership, Qais al-Khazali and others, they're actually meeting right now as we speak. Over the past week, they've met with uh, Mustafa al-Kadhimi, they've met with other Iraqi politicians with the goal of de-escalating. So they're going to try to sort of take care of it. It it does depend on how the Iraqi government and how the international community decides to react to this attack. If it cont- If it follows in the pattern of, okay, we'll just let this one go, they will do it again. Hmm. Yeah, um, Muqtada al-Sadr's party did well. He's played over the years a kind of double bluff game, hasn't he? Siding with the Iranians, well, often at the same time embracing Iraqi nationalists who oppose the grip that Tehran, through its support of the militias, has on the country, as you pointed out. Um, how crucial is he to determining where Iraq is headed uh, of course, uh, the new government is not going to be formed without Muqtada al-Sadr's stamp on it or approval, uh, as we say. So that's that's one element we have right there. Um, as of the militias, he was one of the strongest who condemned the attack. He called it a terrorist attack. And he's continued to have this at least verbal confrontation with these groups since he won the elections. Um, at the same time, they haven't really confronted each other in a very direct way. So this is definitely a, this is definitely a, a context to, to observe. Um, he's definitely going to side with the Iraqi state. Muqtada has been sort of certain, certain people have said that he might be even a better option for the international community to back, uh, versus these militias. If there is that perception or that tendency or trajectory, I believe that will increase. Whether it's the right one or wrong one, that's, that's another story. Muqtada's still not a successful leader, nor is his party considered a, necessarily a good one for one reason only they're extremely corrupt and every time they have been um, in control of a ministry or in any position of power they have failed they have failed miserably so it's not really a matter yes they might not be 
as bad as these militias, but also as politicians and leaders, they're not very successful. And the problem with Iraq is that it was corruption and bad leadership that has led to all of this. So if we don't take care of the root problems, we're always going to have these symptoms. If we look at the other groups, like the Asab al-Haq Kitab, Hezbollah, who they denied any involvement and they called it a, red, a false flag, but they didn't denounce the assassination attempt itself. They didn't say whoever did this is this, this. They didn't mention any of that. So Muqtad is playing a very clear game that he's siding with the siding with the government, siding with the state of Iraq um, against what he describes as chaos. Will that lead to confrontation between uh, his group and his followers or and the militias? I, I don't see that happening. I think there's I think he's reached a level of political security where he fears that a confrontation might be might backfire on him or he might lose some leverage. And he would not, he would not take it that far. So uh, definitely a person to to keep an eye on uh, as uh, the uh, jockeying goes on to determine a cabinet and indeed uh, whether Al Qadami will remain prime minister. I wanted to ask you about regional players principally. I'm thinking here of the Saudis and the Emiratis, who have uh, made overtures to uh, Iran using Iraq and uh, the prime minister as, as as the go-between. Is this an opportunity? <laughs> that could move the narrative forward in a positive way? Do you see, do you see some opportunity there? They, both countries have, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, have come out in clear support of Mustafa al-Kadhimi. They had good relations with him before the attempted assassination. Yes, there had been. I, I don't believe it was really getting to a level of advancement, these talks. The fact that they were taking place in Iraq, even with Kadhimi or Barham Saleh's mediation, um, and they were in Baghdad, if that tells us anything, it tells us that it wasn't really um, it wasn't really negotiation or negotiations or they weren't really talks. It was Iran basically being in the driver's seats and Saudi and the Emirates and the GCC having to concede uh, to concede to them. I don't see also that that really shifting. I think these talks might be on hold for now. But what we what's really interesting what's really interesting to, to look or to observe is how Iran will react. General Qani, who was Qasem Soleimani's replacement, was in Baghdad soon after the assassination, the attempted assassination. It's unclear what he did. He definitely met with Kadhimi. I assume, just an analysis, that this might be Iran's way of distancing itself from the attack, um, from the attempt, uh, the attempted assassination, the attack, and um, making it clear that it was not responsible and the orders were not made in Tehran to carry this attack out. Uh, but it's interesting to see how how Iran is going to act in particular, whether or, want, whether or not it wants to re-enter these talks because it's now sort of in a weakened position. At the end of the day, these are groups that, um, as the United States has said in several official statements, these are the groups that Iran backs that are carrying that carried out this attack. These are the only groups that have these weapons and could have carried this attack out. So that does put Iran kind of in a corner and... Uh, uh, weakens its position when it comes to these talks and these negotiations. I think the Saudis and the Emirates, just by expressing support to the Iraqi government as a whole, um, it might take this opportunity to reach out to other politicians to prove themselves as more reliable allies. Um, it's a matter of how far they want to take their relationship with Iraq. Is it going to be just uh, moderate diplomatic relations? I know in Iraq and Saudi Arabia have more economic economic trade going on that's increasing. Could that also increase? Uh, will there be more investment in the future? These are all things that could possibly happen. Uh, but they won't assert themselves in a way where they want to play a dominant role. They understand the obstacles there. Mm. 
you, you've touched on the JCPOA and, and you know, Biden's, uh, you know, quite keen to get that done in some way, shape or form. But I'm just wondering, when, when you look at his administration and how they're playing the JCPOA and Iraq, uh, how do you how do you rate their efforts so far? I think they're they compartmentalize. Uh, so they don't they don't link what's happening in Iraq and Iran's uh, clear malicious activities in the country to the nuclear deal at all. It's, um, and the way Iran interprets it, and I don't mean Iran as a country as a whole, of course, I mean the way the IRGC and the way the policymakers or policy players in Iran, the way they interpret that is basically they have a, they have a blank sheet to do whatever they want to in the country without any consequences. Um, which is why they're at, their activity in the country has not uh, toned down their intervention in Iraq, their domination of the at least elements of the security apparatus hasn't changed. Even when the United States had more leverage and more presence in Iraq than it does today, even when there was a larger number of U.S. troops under the coalition fighting ISIS, Iran was still doing what it did. Actually, that was the time when the militias had carried out many, many, many crimes um, in in the areas that that were liberated. The United States was there and didn't do anything about it. The nuclear deal has always been something completely different, that it deals with only Iran's nuclear capabilities. It does not deal at all with Iran's malign activity in the region, including countries like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, etc. And that's how they've basically dealt with it. And it's a very diplomatic response. You know, when you ask this to anyone on that team or anyone who's close to members of the team, this is the response that you get. And it's very political. The thing is that it's not practical. If you're going to have a nuclear deal with a country that is acting now to a huge extent as a sponsor of terrorism, if the groups that it supports are actually attempting to assassinate prime ministers, that's a huge deal. You can't isolate the malign activity from the nuclear ambitions or whatever kind of weapons that they have. That's something that I, I wish at some point they take into consideration because the moment that Iran gets that deal and gets what it get, gets what it wants from the deal, there's no need to negotiate anything else. There's no obligation. It has no obligation to curtail its influence in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and other places in Yemen. There's nothing, there's no motivation for it. There's no incentive to change its behavior. Uh, so that's, that's an ongoing conversation that happens here in Washington. But um, no, I see that the nuclear negotiations are going to go as they did, very similar to how they were carried out under the Obama administration. And Iran is pretty much free to do whatever it wants in the region, short of attacking U.S. interests. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, There's a report that's just come out uh, uh, from a, a watchdog on ISF and the sense there is that it is incapable of operating without U.S. support. If Joe Biden does a, an Afghanistan in Iraq, what, what do you think the implications are? It would be easier for these groups to carry out um, similar attacks, perhaps another attempted coup to take over um, segments of the country. It would be a lot easier for them. But also the United States did not, when, like I mentioned, when the, the U.S. was present it didn't do a lot to curtail any activity of these groups. It didn't, it didn't intervene. My personal perspective and analysis of why it didn't is because it wanted to protect the nuclear deal uh, at the time that was still intact under the Obama administration. Now that has changed, but there, there's even more risk that they don't want to risk losing the opportunity to renegotiate a deal 
so so I I don't think necessarily that the U.S. is um, it's the U.S. being in, in Iraq has always been a pawn for them for their rhetoric. Um, it's it's been the source for them of incitement. Where you know the whole Mukawama resistance narrative relies on a foreign force being inside a country and some force resisting it. That's the whole narrative. But it, the, the U.S. Present ha- presence in the country has not harmed them at all. If anything, it's strengthened them. It's given them, I wouldn't say legitimacy, but it was under the Obama administration and under a, a certain trajectory in U.S. foreign policy that continues today that these militias were given, were given leverage, that they were given some sort of um, international recognition uh, and uh, they took advantage of it, of course. So we, we see that continuing as well, even as their numbers of the U.S. forces decrease. But what, what's concerning about, about the U.S. leaving and the ISF not being able to function properly is also ISIS, on the other hand. And I said this recently on another podcast, ISIS, the main threat is, not, is no longer its ability to, to take over swaths of territory and establish a caliphate. It's this tango that they have with these militias, this dance that they do. Because ISIS carries out an attack, let's say it kills five to ten people in a, a, a rural area outside of Baghdad, very far. It doesn't affect the daily lives of, let's say, the urbanites or the elite. But what it does is also, it gives these militias the legitimacy to go into this area, terror, terrorize the local population, accuse them all of, all of being ISIS, carry out what I would describe as war crimes, killing tens of people, displacing hundreds creating this demographic change in certain areas, and the state does not do anything about it. And their popularity, I wouldn't say it, does, it increases, but it basically is them fighting ISIS. And the sectarian rhetoric, Sunni versus Shia, once again is instigated. Uh, this is the main threat that ISIS has. And once that happens, ISIS finds a pool of recruitment. It's easier for them to go and recruit Sunnis that have been um, displaced by these groups, who no longer have a source of income, who've had family members killed by them. This is where the danger lies in. And so far with the U.S. presence, because with the Iraqi army and the, the, uh, the Iraqi counterterrorism service that is, that was funded and created by the United States and did most of the heavy lifting when it came to the war against ISIS with minimal civilian casualties when they were in charge, um, at some point they get exhausted and they can't do everything alone. And with the U.S. no longer helping them, that could be a problem. This is the main concern. So uh, at this stage, what I hear you saying is it's important that the presence, uh, albeit a small one, that, that that presence remain in place, the U.S. presence in, in Iraq. I think at some point the numbers that are in Iraq are not significant enough to, let's say, to warrant a withdrawal at the level that it that happened in Afghanistan. You know, that, that the numbers in Afghanistan were larger the state, the, the country itself was falling to the Taliban very quickly. And there had been an agreement sort of in Washington that Afghanistan cannot be saved. What we can do is we have to leave. We're going to try our best to minimize the tragedy of the outcome. But that was sort of the agreement. And then things fell apart soon after. Iraq is a different context in that they believe that it's not going to fall apart. The militias can't take over. I hope what happened recently with the attempted assassination, um, I hope that make some people recalculate things. Yeah, and, and, and just finally, Russia, uh, it's the Iraqi people who continue to face all sorts of issues, unemployment, corruption, electricity yes. shortages, a lack of drinkable water, huge issues caused by climate change. This summer, uh, past summer, particularly punishing 
could they be the catalyst for change? Because you mentioned that the, the, these militias don't have popular support that they claim to have. Is there still a potential? Because we saw that these people were willing to go into the streets, although many were killed, they were still willing to go into the streets to push for change. Could they be the catalyst? I mean, they have been. It's for the first time in, in Iraq's recent history and politics that there is a there is an opposition bloc in parliament that actually was able to achieve seats and sit in parliament because people voted for them. That has not happened in the past 16 years that Iraqis have voted. There's always been some sort of agreement where parliament members might not like each other, but they all approved of the system. They were happy with the way things going. They were all sort of splitting the, you know, sharing the spoils. There's an opposition bloc that despises the system, that attempted for two years to basically have the system completely collapse, which they were protesting, part of the October protest movement. And then they, they realized that they cannot take the system down. And the best way is perhaps entering the political realm um, and being, being an opposition bloc. And they did that. And they achieved significant votes. And it was also the location. They achieved these votes in the deep Shia South. So this is, they can't accuse these people of being pro-Saudi or pro-Emirati or pro-Israeli. These are the core Iraqi Shiites from two very sacred provinces or provinces with very much religious significance, Karbala and Najaf, that voted for independent candidates or candidates that were part of the October movement, not part of Dawa party or from the other religious Shia parties. That's a huge change. So they've already, they've already affected this kind of change. And I believe with the next election in four years, if things don't go completely out of control, People, more people will be encouraged to vote if they see that it has actually achieved a positive outcome. And more candidates will also enter the political realm um, and, and affect this kind of change. Uh, but will there be protests again at a large scale? I think that the young people are at this point a bit exhausted. And they're also, to a huge extent, content that at least they've achieved something. Um, it's a, how, how far they're willing to go to protect these achievements if they find them um, under threat. Listening to Clubhouse and some of the people talk, of course, it was a very emotional moment after the assassination attempt, despite them not being fans of Mustafa Kalami himself as a prime minister. But there was a sense that this was attack against the Iraqi state. This was treason. And these groups, we need to fight them, even if it comes down to a direct confrontation. So there is that. There is that passion, there is that desire, at least verbally, but how how it's going to translate, I, I don't see that happening. I don't see protests, large protests like two years ago, emerging once again. Well, that's interesting, Russia, that, that as you say, these independent candidates, they've taken the, the parliamentary route, they've taken the democratic route, and, and they could they could well have influence. And uh, we can hope, and I know you and you will hope that this will be the case. Well, I mean, we we wait and see. Um, for me, it's just anything that makes Iraq better and makes Iraq less <laughs> unstable and uh, anything that avoids a confrontation that could lead to the death of people, of course. Rusha, thank you very, very much. Of course. Thank you so much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Rasha Alakidi, a senior analyst and the head of the non-state actors program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute in Washington. Arab Digest also publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Arab Digest newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. 
And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.